go away, go away, beastly thing, shoo, shoo. Okay. Ready? Ready. You can introduce it. No. Let's just start. <clears throat> so, hello. Hello. Um, what's new? Welcome to episode 28. <laughs> <laughs> 28. We're going to have to do something when, it's get, when it gets to episode 30. Okay. Right. right. Well then, in this episode... Oh, loads of stuff. I don't know. It's mostly theropods... The Squamazoic. Going to talk about Tetsuicon. Uh I want to talk about mice. Um, but let's begin with follow-up or fu. Fu. Fu slash dumbass Darren. Uh, so quick series of corrections. Okay, first of all, when I was talking about big cats in Kent, and you remember that photograph of that that cat in the lake? It's not Nick Arnold. Neil Arnold. Neil Arnold. Stupid Darren. Talking about. The, do you remember the, the alleged ostrich dinosaurs from France? Mm-hmm. The uh, and I refer to them as the as the Orgiac theropod. It's not Orgiac, it's Orgiac. Thank you to Irene Dels for that. She seems to know something about how you pronounce French words. I can't imagine why. Um, episode twenty six. <laughs> do, do you do you remember? Do you remember I was talking about? Um, when when people interrupt talks at conferences, and I was saying, I'm sure I know of some examples, but I couldn't remember them at the time. Do you remember that? No. John doesn't remember anything, as we've just established in a previous conversation. Okay. <laughs> I do remember cases of people interrupting talks, and do you know why I remember them? Because it was me. <laughs> I've got three recollections. One was, okay, one was I was giving a talk on wheeled and theropod dinosaurs, and I was discussing MIWG 6314, which is a, or something like that, um, a, a, a theropod dinosaur bone as a thigh bone of femur. And there were several characters in it, which at the time led me to think that it wasn't a member of uh, Tetanuria. It wasn't a Tetanurian theropod. And one of them was that. Uh, I don't need to go into all the details, whatever. I was talking about this particular anatomical detail, and someone, I won't say who, someone in the middle of my talk said, come on, Darren! (laughs) In those, in in group X, character Y is blah, 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 whereas you're talking about blah, 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 blah. Yeah, so that was very rude of them, but it was quite funny. Um, So, one of my talks was interrupted hilariously. Totally threw me off track. (laughs) The other examples, okay, really funny example, I've been to some really, really bad talks due to going to you know, cryptozoology meetings and stuff. And it would be unfair to mention names, but I was in a talk by a writer who'd written a book called The Little People, and it was about the idea that gnomes and goblins and fairies and stuff actually reflect, are, are actually, the stories about them reflect observations of genuine things, entities that come into our dimension through some sort of like, portals from other dimensions or something. A and, uh, pieces. Yep. <laughs> Watertight. I can't see any problems with this otherwise compelling idea. And um, and at the end of his talk, so it was it was nonsense. Just okay, start to finish jibber. <laughs> and the speaker had published a book on this and it was his second book and he actually published a book before. And at the end of the talk, he held up his first book and says make sure you buy my book it's crap (laughs) 
And this is my new book. And I thought he was, you know, sometimes how your derog- your people like insult their own images, say, I, their, yeah. their own work. You say, I did this, I, this is a book I did a couple of years ago. It's a bit of junk, you know, a bit of rubbish. You read it if you want. You know, you might say that about your artwork. I did this, it's a bit of crap. You know, you might like it, you might not. Whatever, it's your opinion. I thought, I honestly thought he was doing that, that he'd referred to his own book as crap. And then he said, and this is my new book. And I <laughs> wittily piped up. Is that crap too? <laughs> and suddenly he went quiet. The audience went quiet. Everyone looked at me and thought, "Hmm, <laughs> ah." And then I don't know. I don't know how this works, but I realised sort of processing the sounds in my head. He didn't say it's crap. He'd actually said it's cracking. <laughs> I mean, it's really good. I love this book. You buy it. And um, at that point, the, uh, oh, the, darn. The organiser of the conference stepped to the fore and said, uh, big hand for the speaker I'm referring to, and initiated a wave of applause, thereby bringing events to a close. So the third, third and final event was, it was in a natural history talk, and um, a gentleman was discussing bird life he had observed around the world, and he showed a, a slide of some paradise shell ducks and said, I think these are whistling ducks of some sort. And I said, no. <laughs> they're shell ducks <laughs> and then I realised oh sh- uh, drat that's really rude <laughs> so re-identifying someone's birds in their own presentation so I came up to him afterwards and apologised and, and he said well yes it was very rude <laughs> but but uh, yeah so so I, I knew I'd remember something <laughs> like. all um, involving you all involving predominantly bad behaviour on my part so oh, the, the guilt calling someone's book crap <laughs> and calling Always someone's not. identification of birds crap. Exactly. But in my defence, I was right on all of these occasions. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, Any more follow up? No, uh, yeah. So I was just thinking about the fact that the the thing the TV series My Name Is Earl. You know where he goes around and apologises mm, to all the people yeah. he's messed with in the past. I started doing that recently, and you know what I learned? What's that? That generally, people don't remember the stuff that you remember as being bad. Mm. Like if you've insulted someone, or tripped them over, or hit them, or something, that actually, years later, (laughs) well, oh, I don't remember that. I don't remember when you beat me up. What are you talking about? (laughs) In your case, there's photographic evidence, which people will see one day. Um... So some follow up. There's been some follow up actually in the comments on the uh, in the, the the field on the where the podcast is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, comments yeah. there. Thanks to Brian Brian Eng for thoughts on on Godzilla. You you've read all these, yeah. Um, Mike Trainer came up with. I think some of this is on Facebook as well. I can't remember. Mike Trainer, thanks for the useful stuff on. Uh, you know when we were talking about the face punch paper. Mm. Mike Trainer t- told us all about George Chivalo. I think that's how you pronounce it. This like famous boxer, and Mike's point was basically that <laughs> he had a face built for boxing, and that he could withstand. You know, he would like wear people out as they punched his face because he's. And it, you look at pictures of him, and you'll see exactly the point that Mike is Mike <laughs> is making within the context of the um, the face punch hypothesis. Chivalo is certainly not a typical person in terms of the physiognomy of his face he's like got a really weird face so if someone if you could look at him and say someone like that is especially adapted for boxing it's like well they're so atypical that obviously that doesn't apply to the rest of humanity 
Sigma Dontine Rodents, when I was having a discussion, when we were having this heated debate about Gabby, the Great American Biotic Interchange, I mentioned Sigma Dontines because they are uh, involved in the Great American Biotic Interchange and in fact appear in South America before the land bridge is supposed to have formed. It was James Albright, thank you James, who reminded me to mention Sigma Dontines. We Sigma should never have talked about those. They've been in like this. This has been follow up several times, hasn't it? Yeah, but previously I I, uh, I I credited it to the wrong person. I just wanted to thank James specifically, and I also said that I would come back to Sigma Dontines because they're such an incredibly important and fascinating group of rodents. If we they're, want the rest of the the show forever to be entirely follow up about rodents, little ratty mammal things. This is, but this is one of the most. This this is probably one of the largest single radiations of mammal species. That, depending on your, um, like how you interpret, you know, which taxa you include within the radiation, it's definitely over, definitely over four hundred because it was three hundred ninety six a few years ago, and probably over five hundred. Cotton rats, South American water mice, fish-eating rats, rice rats, pygmy rice rats, arboreal rice rats, false rice rats, bristly mice, Galapagos mice, cane mice, montane mice, Atlantic forest mice, climbing mice, oldfield mice, grass mice, acodonts, altiplano mice, crimson nose rats, Bruces, which are named after mammalogist Bruce Patterson, <laughs> a group of mice called Bruces, <laughs> bolo mice, vesper mice, big-eared mice, um, famous for their weird, the, the sigma dontines because they've got this like, weird sort of sigma-shaped pattern of cusps, and also their weird complex penises. The, the baculum, the bone that supports the penis, is, which is a typical trait of mammals. Humans are peculiar and lacking one. Um, the, 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 the baculum in Sigmodontine is kind of like often said to be shaped like a key or something. It's really, really weird. I don't know how that's supposed to work. But. And really weird thing about their, their ribs, their first thoracic rib, the two heads of the rib, one head goes on to the first thoracic vertebra, but the other one goes on to the seventh cervical vertebra. So... Who knows what's going on there? Crazy rats, mice, whatever. Um, and that might be it from follow-up. <laughs> <laughs> I think I'll do the um, the, uh, the, 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 the email schnafu in follow-up, because I guess it is follow-up, isn't it? So, for once, I've made a mistake. Normally, this, this section is just chock-a-block full of Darren <laughs> mistakes. <laughs> and there's been an error at Tetsu Tech. Um, yes, so email forwarding stopped working on the Tetrapodcats email. Normally the way I did it was that it would forward to my personal email address. Um, and it stopped working a couple of months ago and I didn't notice because I was still getting the PayPal notifications, which is why we were still doing, still getting cash for questions through, but, um, yeah, anything that was sent directly to that address and wasn't a PayPal notification for some reason wasn't forwarding to my address. So we've missed a whole bunch of emails. I'm still working through them. We missed a few cash for questions and a lot of other things. Um, the reason no email's been answered is because no one's been seeing it. So it's not just that we're rude bastards, although we certainly are. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> um, yes, so we've got a big. We've got actually got quite a lot of uh, cash for questions. A bit of a backlog. We probably won't get through them all this episode. Um, but yes, so if you have sent something in, um, you probably will get an answer. But yeah, wait for a while. Um, yeah, sorry about that, everyone. But there you go. These things happen. 
So should we name names or should we just leave unanswered questions and let people work it out for themselves? No, we will answer them. I've put them in the... <clears throat> oh, okay. But I've the put ones them in that the system. We, the ones where we know that people have sent questions and we haven't seen them. Because oh, isn't that it's the case? Quite, it's quite, we've got quite a lot of um, email. I don't think we should read everything out. All right. Yes. Uh, should we talk right now about... Um, oh, no, no, news from the world of John and Darren that comes next. Okay, this... Right, okay. Okay, right, yeah. News, right. news... Okay, okay. Yeah. Go. News from the, news from the world of news, very briefly, because there's always so much fascinating new stuff. Today... Yeah, quick with this, quick with this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Today, second, second of July today, the, the, the paper by Sykes et al. has just been published on... Um, Mentioned this before. I've written an article about it in oh, was it Focus Magazine? I can't remember now. But um, this thing where Brian Sykes went around and collected samples, tissue samples, and blood and so on that's supposed to be from Yetis, Bigfoots, and Almastis. And uh, a pa- the papers in Proceedings of the Royal Society, which is like you know one of the most prestigious journals on the on the world in the world even. And um, yeah, basically, this is the paper showing that all of the samples they collected were from um, you know, horses and bears and raccoons and, and stuff, with the only kind of th- mild surprise being that Yeti samples um, were from bears, but they were from bears that seemed to have uh, indication of ancient hybridization with polar bears. And this is a bit of a surprise for bears living in the Himalayan region. Now, cryptozoologists and one particularly big internet presentee cryptozoologist in particular does that make any kind of sense one cryptozoologist has got a particularly big internet presence <laughs> um in particular they keep saying that this indicates the presence of an unknown bear that lives in the region because sykes et al are saying that there's evidence for polar bear genes in some of these Himalayan bears but that's not what it means at all. It doesn't mean there's an unknown bear in the region. All it means is that some of the bears they're sampling contain evidence of ancient hybridization. So in the same way that, you know, it's well known these days that Western European people include a component of like, Neanderthal DNA. But that doesn't mean that there's some cryptic population of sort of uh, anachronistic Neanderthal-like hominins still eking out a living somewhere in... France or something, it, it's evidence of ancient hybridization which has been preserved in our genes and surely that's the same thing here. We already know that ancient hybridization events between brown bears and polar bears are reflected in the genetics of bears that look like brown bears, but they're actually hybrids, in diverse locations across um, northern Asia and, and uh, North America. So the fact that there's this because, you know, populations like uh, hybridization occurs in like a patchwork pattern and sort of like yeah. one... Yeah. So, so yeah, that, that paper's out. Um, uh, another, yeah, anything to add on that? Nope. Nope, you're good on that, yeah. Uh, newts are now in Australia. There's a, a feral population of smooth newts from Europe, which, have been, which are currently uh, doing okay in Australia, which I thought was pretty cool. Um, there's a paper just been published in one of the herpetological journals on sidewinding behavior in an anaconda. I really mean to check that out because that sounds crazy, kind of contrary to everything we think we know about how big snakes are supposed to be able to locomote. <laughs> um, and there's a really nice paper that was in, I think, was it Nature Communications last week? Um, oh, God, it wasn't last week. It was weeks ago, 11th of June. Nothosaur foraging tracks in the middle of traffic of southwestern China, Zhang et al. 
So loads of like weird little scoop marks on the sediment. Hundreds and hundreds of little scoop marks and paired scoop marks. And they reckon that these are produced by nothosaurs. So this is like Triassic Stropterygians, close relatives of plesiosaurs, which are foraging close to the sea floor and sort of um, punting along with their forelimbs. I'm interested in it especially for two reasons. One is that the scoop marks aren't made by individual like claw-bearing digits, but are made by what seem to be scoop-shaped, paddle-shaped objects. Now, there's this, um, I wouldn't call it a controversy, but there's this thing in reconstructions of Triassic Stropterygians where you often see bits of nothosaurs with individual claw digits, but there's also a tradition of showing some of these taxa as having paddles for forelimbs and claw digits on the hind limbs. Mm. And this... These, this track, these trackways seem to show they definitely have paddles for forelimbs at least. So if you look at Brian Chu's reconstruction, which accompanies this article, he, he, he follows this. He gives them like paddles for forelimbs and clawed digits for hindlimbs. And that always strikes me as a bit weird because if you're going to go as far as evolving paddles on one set of limbs, I don't know, wouldn't you, wouldn't you have gone so far as to have paddles for both sets of limbs? Well, it depends whether you've got differentiation between the limbs and their functions, right? I mean, they yeah. could. It's hard to know yeah. without watching a living animal. Well, yes, and you do, like turtles famously, sea turtles, use the hind flippers in digging mm. and not in actual flying. And it's been argued that that's why their paddles are so different. But the, the hind pair are still paddles. They're not clawed, you know. In, in, and the other cool thing is how big some of these animals are. I've been writing about nothosaurs lately and all those Triassic Sopterygians. They're huge. The biggest ones, like Nothosaurus giganteus, which is like from you know, Germany and a few other places in Europe, its skull can be over 80 centimetres long and the whole animal, the biggest ones, are over 7 metres long. And some of these trackways, I don't know about you, but I tend to think of the Chinese ones as being smaller than the, uh, than the, the, the European and Middle Eastern ones. It's, no, some of these Chinese ones indicates like total the 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 width between the the scoop shaped paddle marks is can be more than a meter. So the whole animals they they say some of them are over seven over eight meters long. So um, that's pretty cool. Okay, <clears throat> there you go. And that'll do. Like I say, loads more new stuff could talk about, but that that's news from the news from the world of news. <laughs> news from the world of news. Okay. So let's let's move on. Uh, news from the world of Darren and John. News from the world of Darren and John. Look, forty and times. Look. <laughs> 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 article in uh, July's issue. That's three one six. I'll be bringing a copy of this to Tetsugon. Uh, it's, it's, they called it speculative zoology, and uh, two pages, which is basically a giant advert for the cryptozoologicon, mm. and they included. There's the see that's your dingo neck. Yep. Together with the saber tooth cat that I drew. But the funny thing is, can you see that vertical black bar? Yeah. That's where a printing error has obscured your name, so you don't get any credit. <laughs> <laughs> so all the other credits are fine, just not that one. So, Take, oh, that, me. <laughs> Take that, Goldway. Take that, Goldway. And that that picture, which has been on Tetsu, that's Rebecca Groom coloured that for me, so she gets yeah. the credit as well. So that's cool. Um, do we want to talk about Tetsucon? Uh, yeah, we should remind people about Tetsucon because I'm hoping to have this episode out this afternoon. So, Ooh. yeah, well, this so, evening anyway. Yeah, 
So all the stuff is already on the website, including, so what is it? Tetzu.com slash convention. Yep, tetzu.com slash convention. Yes. Um, full list of speakers, talks on primatology, herpetology, cryptozoology, speculative zoology, dinosaurs, pterosaurs, a paleo art workshop involving John, Mark Witten, and uh, Bob Nichols, and a talk on wildlife photography, uh, a a hilarious quiz, but I still haven't written, and uh, well, other stuff. It's it's all come together really well. Yep. Um, and also, if you are listening to this on uh, Wednesday the second or Thursday the third, you've got to book your tickets now because um, tickets will go not be on sale after four p.m. on Friday the fourth. So book your tickets now. We have to we have to stop selling them because we have to give the venue final numbers. So so last chance. Last chance. Yes, absolutely. And we're looking forward to seeing everyone there. Mm-hmm. And uh, of course, if it works out, <laughs> and still not entirely sure <laughs> if we uh, and works out, I should say, means that we come away with some money in our pocket <laughs> rather than no money or a la- or a minus number of minus amount of money. A minus um, number of money. <laughs> Um, if yeah, if it works out, then obviously this is going to be a regular thing, and it'll only get bigger over time as well. So, but that's if it works out. It works <laughs> like, out yeah. This is version one. Good God, fingers crossed. Yeah, uh, you ready? I mean, have you prepared all your what you're going to say and stuff? No. <laughs> I was saying saying to John earlier, I haven't prepared anything because a a glut of work, new new books and stuff, has just prevented me from getting even close to it. But, um, I'm sure it'll work out. See, like a lot of version ones, so we've got a schedule, but I'm kind of expecting that perhaps everyone won't be seated by the time I'm meant to start talking, so I've got to have, like, several versions, like, 10-minute version, and what if I've only got two minutes? Yeah. Yeah. So I've got to have several versions ready to go. Yikes. Yeah. (laughs) Who's doing the the chairing? I mean, I assume we're sort of switching you and I. Yeah, I think we'll switch. You've got to introduce my talk, because I know where I can... There's no way I can give a talk and introduce it as well. As well. Yeah, I'll introduce you. All over you. the place. Yeah. Exactly. Um, and, and by the way, two-minute rule is in effect. People don't like the two-minute rule, don't they? Also, you you pay no attention to the two-minute rule. Yes, yeah, it's, it's it's one of those running joke things, John. That's the point. <laughs> Have you looked at Tetrapods, the, the the blog site called Tetrapods Zoology lately? Currently hosted on Scientific American. Nope. Ah, you slack. Don't read that rag. <laughs> <laughs> Did you, there's a there's a, an article again lack of time nothing new I recycled the article on Doikas little group of little African antelopes and also did uh, an article on Tetzucon it's called Last Call um, but the most interesting thing that's been happening on Tetzu has been this massive brouhaha over the biogeography of ratites and biogeographic theory in general. So in May, late May, I published an article on um, uh, evolution of ostriches and their relatives. It's called Ratites in Trees, Evolution of Ostriches and Kin, blah, blah, blah. And um, a guy shared up in the comments called John Graham, and he supports what's known as panbiogeography, which basically means that... (sighs) What does it basically mean? It seems to basically mean that they prefer the idea that things have moved around the world through vicariance, which yeah. means that they've yeah they've they've their distribution reflects ancient spreading of you know 
continents and land masses and stuff. And uh, in the case of the ratites, which are crowned birds, deeply nested within birds, deeply nested within the manoraptor and radiation, blah, blah, blah. For, for, for vicariants to explain ratite evolution, ratites must have evolved in the Jurassic, <laughs> like in the early or middle Jurassic, which is inconsistent with every other bit of evidence that we have. And um, his comment inspired a series of responses, and then he responded, and so on and so forth. And currently, it's at 345 <laughs> comments. Oh, wow, yeah. I did read <laughs> this just... article, but I didn't notice the insane uh, yeah. discussion that went on afterwards. It's just, it's just happened in the last couple of days. So normally, an article from May, the commenting has you know, yeah. died. There won't yeah. be anything new. But this is... Uh, <laughs> And a major problem with Scientific American, with the layout of their blog site, is there's no running latest comments section, which means that people don't see comments added to old articles unless I make a point of telling them. So, of course, I on Twitter and sometimes on Facebook as well, I say, you know, check this out. This, there's a new load of comments on this old article. And um, thank you to all the brilliant commenters who've gone back and had a stab at this because a lot, a lot of people have chipped in. And um, uh, Gray and, and another guy called Michael Heads, they basically are, are the main proponents of this pan-biogeography hypothesis, as they call it. Uh, and everyone else in the comments thread, which is quite a lot of people, everyone else is saying, wait a minute, that doesn't make any sense because of X, Y, Z, because of this, because of that. Are you seriously suggesting that <laughs> there's a meme that's been spawned out of it today or yesterday, which is, wait a minute, if, this, if you're saying that you know, vicariants has to explain the distribution of extant animals, are you seriously saying that, like, because they used to be on hippos, they used to be hippos on Madagascar, and hippos split from, sorry, Madagascar split from Africa, like in the Jurassic or something. <laughs> Are you saying that hippos go back to the Jurassic? And the response was, well, perhaps. <laughs> and someone said, you do realise that's kind of, um, you just, you've just advocated rabbits in the Precambrian. <laughs> so uh, it's just gone on and on and on and on and on. So 345 comments. And... It's funny when people get a sort of a, uh, a fixed idea about a fairly powerful explanatory theory, but the problem is that it, it just doesn't fit with the facts, and they just it's very difficult for them to let it go for some reason. I'm pretty confident, well, I'm sure from the, the, the performance I've seen so far, that it's adherence to the idea where, and, and, and when you actually talk to them about specific cases, they don't seem to know because one of the guys here keeps on saying, well, I haven't studied that group, so I can't comment on it. Yeah. So, well, nah. Anyway, Right. Okay. Was that news from the world of Darren and John? Yep. And that's done now. Done. In the bag. Okay. We should move on to cash for questions. Some people have been waiting a long time for these cash for questions. <laughs> um, so I think, unfortunately, I haven't actually put them in an order because uh, apparently I'm quite incompetent. Mm. Um but I think Catherine Fowler was one of the people waiting for a long time. So let's start with hers, huh? Okay. And this is a bit for me and you, I think. Why do depictions of theropod arms in many artworks look unnatural and ultimately unconvincing? And are there any inherent inherent challenges in reconstructing them? There are very few artists, you, you I suppose that's referring to me, and Emily come to mind that pass the uncanny valley test, but the awkward-looking arms are the norm, and I think detract from the viewer understanding of the animal as a whole. Thanks. What is it with theropod arms? We were gonna, we were considering almost doing an entire show on reconstructing theropods at one stage, weren't we? Because this is such a a hot topic, a thing yeah. that's discussed 
so extensively. So, <clears throat> well, obviously, say to say to start with that, I, I, most viewers, well, any listen, oh, God, most <laughs> listeners, <laughs> m- m- many of our listeners will be familiar with current thinking on dinosaurs, which means that like the traditional old what we call the bunny hands depiction of predatory dinosaurs and some other dinosaurs as well the idea that their palms were sort of facing the ground has proven to be inaccurate uh, based partly on the fact that we are now people better understand how non-bird theropods are similar to birds and birds of course keep their palms in a facing inwards orientation and also because new work by a load of people um, uh, Phil, Phil Center for one and um, uh, what's his name guy who did the, the the work under Gautier on Dinonychus. Um Various people have shown that when you actually manipulate the bones, uh, you you have to basically have them in a in a palms inward orientation, um, which seems to be seems to be the case across across theropods. As for Catherine's uh, uncanny valley um, stuff, well, that's kind of more to do with artistry. So I think you should talk about that. What do you think? Well, no, I think there is something going on here and that uh, you'll probably be able to bring it to mind more quickly, but theropod arms are just sort of dangling there, right? Um, and most animals tend to either use their limbs, walking on them, or tuck them away in some fashion. And I think there's a lack of good models for how theropods held their arms in life, which is why it's difficult for artists to know what to do with them. Um, it's a bit like, you know, what do you do what, what do you do with your hands when you think about it, right? Like if you're being filmed or something and you just realise that your arms are these stupid lumps of meat and you've got to yeah. um, do something with them. And I think that's, a, that's something that artists struggle with every time they go to draw a theropod. This is why we evolved pockets. so and uh, this has got me thinking a little bit about this Um, you know maybe the way we have theropod arms just dangling like that is just wrong maybe they did hold them up against their bodies you know maybe they um, actually retracted their humerus up higher and actually held their hands quite close to their bodies I don't know Um, I mean obviously Manoraptoran theropods a lot of them could f- fold their um, limbs, probably not as tightly as birds, as modern birds. But um, so you, you, we can be fairly certain that they probably folded them somewhat. But yeah, I'm thinking of things like Allosaurus or something. Um, yeah, I do wonder whether they didn't hold their their arms in their sort of dangly down, a bit forward sort of way that most people depict them. What do you think? I'm trying yeah. to think of animals that do have limbs like this, well, that they just that, dangle. That's where I'm coming from, because I'm thinking of extant analogues. Mm. And lizards lizards that perform bipedally, and obviously there aren't many, but there are some. Um, frill-neck lizards, Chlamydosaurus, um, in the wild, they when they're not... Obviously, one of the problems with animal behaviour is that most of the time, the non-human animal knows it's being watched by a human so it doesn't behave you know in a natural unstressed fashion so people use hidden cameras and hides and stuff to get around this and there are very few observations of lizards where the lizards aren't aware of the fact they're being observed so 
some researchers went to great trouble to film frilly neck lizards, frilly neck lizards, frilly neck dragons, whatever you want to call them. They they filmed them like you know with hidden cameras, and these lizards jaunt along in a hilarious fashion, bipedally for substantial portion of the time when they're on the ground because they also climb a lot. And when they're on the ground, running along bipedally, looking really strange. What do they do with their arms? Well, this. <laughs> Thanks, Darren. That's very explanatory to our listening so, audience. Yeah. I mean, okay, so lizards aren't theropods. They don't have the same, like, you know, same... I mean, their limbs are pretty flexible, but they don't have, like, the same sort of foldable wrists and sort of o- obvious indications of musculature showing that the arms were used for grabbing prey, prey and stuff. But plus, you think of... Can you describe the, what you did just for okay. our listening li- audience? The forelimbs... <laughs> hang down in floppy, amusing fashion against the thorax, loosely. They're not, they're not like, held out there in front or like an old-fashioned iguanodon or anything like that. They just are kind of, like, limply shaking away with the, as, as the body moves. And you think of... Okay, so birds, of course, the problem with birds is the, ma- the majority of them are... Their forelimbs are extensively feathered, thereby... And, and thereby either have to be properly stowed away and folded up tidily, or... The, the actual underlying skeletal structure is entirely obscured. But in the few birds where that isn't the case, kiwi and emu, their forelimbs also hang down. Kiwis stupidly. and emus. I'm going to stick with it. I'm gonna stick with it. <laughs> so kiwi forelimbs you, ordinarily, you ordinarily don't see because they're hidden in the shaggy pelage. <laughs> but um, but la Emus, you look at a lot of uh, emu um, photos, if you know what to look for, you can actually see the forelimb just hanging down, just like, just this sort of stupid little flap thing that's like hanging down on the side of the body, limply. Okay, the emu uh, wing is not, you know, functionally analogous to the arms of many theropods, so maybe that analogy doesn't work at all, but... (sighs) Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I guess the problem is that they maybe they did just look awkward. I mean, we don't know that things don't look awkward in in um, mm. in the real world, especially when you've got something which is just not doesn't have a close modern analog. Yeah, we should say that a lot of artists traditionally have put the shoulder joint in the wrong place on dinosaurs because articulated dinosaurs demonstrate that the coracoids are almost touching on the midline. And as soon as you accept that, it means the whole scapular coracoid has to be like right down near the front of the animal, which means that rather than being like up on the side or further back than some than is than is shown, the shoulder joint is actually quite far forwards and low down on the thorax, right? Mm. So, plus the way that the uh, limb bones actually articulate demonstrates that in theropods with well-developed limbs, forelimbs, you should expect the the elbow to be held at an Angle with some exceptions, the um, the the limb the uh, the forelimb is not just held like in a straight line. It was in uh, a belly sores like Carnotaurus and their relatives because they've got super strange arms. But in the majority of them, Tyrannosaurs, Allosaurs, Manoraptor, and so on, you should expect there to be like a strong angle between the lower arm and the and the humerus. And then the hand basically continues in a straight line from the lower arm. Yeah. Although, of course, once you get towards birds, then then you get the the folding thing going on. But um, taking all those things into account, position of the shoulder joint, flexed elbow, 
hand being a straight line of the arm. I mean, it's it's hard not to imagine that they really aren't. There you go. Modern. <laughs> <laughs> Audio podcast. Uh, Audio podcast. <laughs> um, I mean, basically, I kind of do think that the good artists are getting it right. And that if the animals look stupid, that's like, yeah, they did. <laughs> they did look stupid. They yes. did look stupid. Yes, I think that's possible. Yeah. Um, also, I think there is a possibility that we are getting it wrong and that basically they just retracted them further, closer to the body, and that they didn't hold them out downwards and forwards like we show they held them more up against the body but but where can they kind of retract them to because there's not that much possibility of you can't you can't retract you can't like ex- take carry the humerus up much further posterodorsally than what so that, well it's already this is very hard in words it's it's kind of hard to <laughs> you can't draw a picture that doesn't draw work. it okay. so uh, the, yeah no but I think yeah, th- yes. can you see that yeah I can but I think you're missing a third dimension there and that you can actually rotate them outwards a little bit as well that's true definitely yeah so if you sort of imagine you rotate them outwards the forelimbs go the forearms go in a bit and you just pull them back up towards the body yeah so it sort of looks like a a diamond from the front. Yeah, yeah. Um, but you, they're they're back as well. Um, so you know maybe maybe that is how they held them, uh, which would le- probably look less um, dangly, uh, less crazy in that respect. But yeah, who who knows? I wonder mm. if there's any way to know this sort of thing. There is that um, uh, trace fossil, isn't there, of a theropod resting on its knuckles? Yes, that's right, yeah. From um, the New York Supergroup, I think. Yeah, which I think is quite interesting. You don't you don't see that depicted very much. Um, no, they suggest that they were using their hands in ways that you probably... which artists uh, loathe the show, you know, more flexible and more... Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's hard to imagine a modern reconstruction of a theropod doing that. Well, my recollection of that paper, because I remember specifically, I did a, I, I commented on it for some journalist or something. The the um, the orientation of the handprints basically matched with the with the, the I was going to say the traditional idea, but the new idea that they're walking around palms inwards, oh, sure, yeah, stereotypical, yeah, 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 yeah. because it's this. It was like I think it's like the outside edges of its hands or something that contacted the ground. So. I th- it, okay, yeah, I should look at that again because I thought it suggested they were um, flexing their fingers more, so they're sort of almost making a little fist. Hmm. But I should look at it again because I'm not sure. Also, thinking of the amount of of upper arm musculature that some big theropods and some small theropods would have had. I mean, you think of like spinosaurs with these you know, giant areas for muscle attachment on the humerus and stuff. Um, they couldn't hold it, like, flush against the side. Probably couldn't hold it flush against the side of the body. It would have had to be sort of, like, somewhat sort of abducted away from the side of the body a bit. Uh, but, uh, well, maybe. These things are really tricky to tell. I just, yeah. I don't know. Because the way your muscles can squish and be cinched in with ligaments and stuff, it's just so... And there's definitely enough play in the uh, centre's work on Acrocanthosaurus and, and uh, more recently Heinrich Mallison's stuff on the 
he, he's you know digital manipulation of platyosaurus forelimbs and platyosaurus is not a theropod but it turns out that platyosaur type sauropodomorphs have a similar forelimb orientation to theropods palms inwards mm. um, all that kind of stuff flexed elbow um, yeah there's enough play in the in the joints for them to be able to yeah move they have quite a bit of motion at the at the shoulder joint so the only way of resolving this really would be would to be to find a three-dimensional articulated uh <laughs> one that's been theropod that's frozen symmetrically in in, li- in in life posture and did you <laughs> in life posture yeah. um Andrea Cow blogged uh, recently about this paper that was in an archaeological journal. This is amazing. It's about a griffon vulture that was preserved, uh, I think it was in the Pompeii eruption. I think. Oh my God. Doing this without, off the top of my head, okay. Assume I've got pretty much everything wrong. Okay. Can't remember the name. Yeah. But it was. <laughs> it's, it's food for follow up. Yeah, a griffon vulture head and face that preserved, you know, in uh, as a as a cast in ash. Yeah, and um, and it was like, wow! If you can, okay, this is only uh, you know, recent recent history. It's not even an ancient fossil, but if the fidelity of this fossil does ex- does lead to all kinds of exciting possibilities, as go say Liaoning, where the animals are buried in ash and. What if we found some incredible? That was that was that was Andrea's point in his blog article, and um, yeah, that we could find something really really nice one day. Yeah, yeah. Or what in amber? A little tiny theropod in amber, because <laughs> there's there's not only are there, there there are Cretaceous lizards and arthropods in amber, and there's also quite a few feather bit, feathers in amber. Yeah. Some of some of these um, feathers may not be from birds; they may be from non-bird theropods. Um, yeah. Yeah, it would have to be fairly um quickly fossilized though to get it in resting life posture. <laughs> <laughs> it'd have to be uh, Don't move your arms while I cover you in ash. <laughs> or a senescent uh, osteoarthritic individual that is like frozen it because it because <laughs> it can't move it. <laughs> while we've been discussing this, I am looking at like articulated uh theropod skeletons. Not that it really tells you anything, but nah, I don't know. Lots of them do seem to be holding their um, elbows further back than is generally depicted. You know, the elbow isn't forty-five degrees down; it's it's ninety degrees to the ground. Uh, yeah, to the ground. It's horizontal. It's held horizontally mm. um, in the fossils. Mm. Uh, but obviously, they're dead and they've been moved about and all sorts of things. They're probably dried out and all that sort of stuff as well. So. Who knows what that means? Probably nothing, but there you go. Mm. Um, there's also a lots of uh, Donald Glutes wonderful photos in this particular Google search. Right. Mm. Uh, so there's the, is that an answer for Catherine? We don't really know. <laughs> oh, uh, I'm out of drink. I need drink for the painted Mike Keezy drinking game. <laughs> um. Um, okay, so I think that is sort of the answer that yeah, they could have looked awkward. Yeah, we could be doing it wrong. Who really knows? It's definitely something we can come back to. Uh, this is something that there's a substantial interest in. So, yep. yeah, so th- thank you, Catherine. I hope that kind of... I-, I can't think what else we can say about that for now. But um, Okay, shall we... we stay on the topic of theropod forelimbs and then move on to the... Sc- yeah, 
squamazoic um, questions. So we've got two... Interesting that they go in waves like this, isn't it? We've got two questions on theropod forelimbs and two questions on speculative zoology mm. of the squamazoic. So mm. let's let's do George Starr's question. It's a biggie, so we have to spend some time on it. Um, what is the current thinking on why tyrannosaurid forelimbs are so small relative to the other theropod lineages? I've read every single T-Rex trying and have, a, have failed to find an answer. T-Rex trying, that's those awful little cartoons, isn't it? Yeah. With the, I hate those so much. <laughs> really hate them. Do you know why I hate them? Uh, Anthropocentricism. Yeah. That's like... It's good. <laughs> People depict a... Okay, I, 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 we're mostly adults here. Mm. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to speak frankly without using the, the key terms involved. There's one in particular. There's a joke that refers to an aspect of sexual behavior in which individual animals do not have to be with a partner at the time for this sexual behavior to be completed. And the, and the, and the joke is, how does Tyrannosaurus indulge in said sexual behavior? And I was like, you anthropocentric moron do you not realize that the vast majority of animals don't use their hands don't have hands and yet perform that act in a myriad other different ways since when do you need hands to do you know you know what i'm getting at here i think everyone knows what you're getting at (laughs) however i would say darren that that's part of the joke it's kind of imagining Ah, it's kind of imagining a human brain in a in a tyrannosaurus body that's what's kind of funny about it well i'm offended it's not just the short (laughs) arm thing it's sort of like oh look at like yeah poor mr tyrannosaur because all the other stuff all the other things as well it's like how would it do how well it would it's got feet and a mouth. It's like, how do you, why, oh, how could you assume that everything has to be done with hands, you stupid monkeys? I mean, yeah, it's in a better position than most birds, isn't it, to do stuff? Yeah. At least it's got arms. Yeah. So, anyway, <laughs> um, back to the topic at hand. Well, this is the, this is the proverbial amount of money question, isn't it? Why do, why do tyrannosaurs have such small arms? Because... It's been the source of a, a, a tremendous amount of conjecture and speculation, uh, as well as some good ideas in the literature. Of course, nobody really knows. Um, is there a trend within big theropods towards fall-in reduction? And, uh, well, depends on which lineage you're looking at, actually, because I think part of the reason some of them have proportionally small arms is allometry. They, the, their arms... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I need to. I, I, I don't have any of the, the stats and stuff in front of me, but <laughs> but um, within Tyrannosauroids, there's definitely a trend towards volume reduction because obviously we see you know the the early ones, Dilong, Guanlong, if they are Tyrannosauroids, that they probably are, Stokesosaurus, Eotyrannus, and so on. They've got pretty decent. Uh, four limbs in proportion to the size of their body. Some of them have got particularly long hands. Eotyrannus has got really long hands. Then once you get up to these big animals, um, I, the general theme, the general way of thinking has always been that they are relying more extensively on the the skull as the main weapon of choice. So they they aren't like... I think ancestral tyrannosauroids, the earliest small-bodied members of the tyrannosaur lineage, are grabbing things with their hands and biting things as well. But 
in Tyrannosaur phylogeny, we see this, we see adaptations related to what some people have called power biting. Um, it seems that the skulls are becoming more and more important as the main weapon used to dispatch prey, and the forelimbs are becoming less and less important. Um, so that's kind of like part of the story behind this this trend. Um, but would they have? Would it have gone all the way to them losing the forelimbs entirely? And were the forelimbs, even the substantially reduced proportionally small forelimbs of advanced tyrannosaurids, were they like completely useless? And uh, there's indications that no, they even the small ones were even the small forelimbs were still useful for something. Um, people have pointed to people like you know Ken Carpenter has written about this. The fact that you've got um, substantial pathologies present on the forelimbs or alleged pathologies. Can't remember what the latest thinking is on some of the some of the pathologies on FM and HPR two hundred eight one the Tyrannosaurus rex specimen generally known as Sue. Uh, some of the alleged pathologies have turned out not to be pathologies, but you know, like mistakes, uh, mistaken interpretations that they're artifacts of preservation or whatever. But I think that some of the forelimb damage is real. Mm, I'm still not very convinced by that because I can imagine forelimbs getting damaged even if they're not used for anything. Yeah, Just, you, if you're stuck to a um, on the the front end of a six ton predator, you're gonna get bashed occasionally, aren't you? <laughs> I mean, well, it the just doesn't mean that they have to be used for anything. No, but Carpenter's argument for a damage on the humerus of Sue was that there was a tendon avulsion a tendon, injury, yeah, but which which he explained as being linked to like some major heavy use of the forelimb not just that it got bitten or you know got yanked or whatever but that it was actually the animal was using its forelimb muscles and that's the only way you could sustain this injury i don't know i don't know whether that's... but it could just be a resist like it got caught on a yeah. say a frill of a triceratops and it just got yanked in the wrong way sure there was muscle resistance which caused the tendon injury it I, i'm just not convinced that that's smoking gun evidence that they were using them for anything because I, I guess I fall on, on into the camp that they just weren't using them. I mm. I don't because they are absurdly small for an animal of that size. Um, even like a slight shift of weight while they're trying to use them on something will break them. I I just I don't I can't imagine that there can be a use. I wouldn't go that far, um, given that even the tiny, tiny, tiny monodactyl or didactyl limbs of some borrowing skinks still sometimes have a you know they do still have a role in in locomotion yeah, but, but they're, no but that's that's different because they're tiny so yeah. the the forces involved are so much smaller but if you you imagine you're an 8 ton tyrannosaur and you've got an arm which is okay it's it's a bit stronger than a human arm but it's about the same size and you've got it hooked into something and you just move a little bit <laughs> you've broken it Mm. I I just I can't see how I can't see any any use and the idea that they're holding on to another tyrannosaur with it is just I just find that ridiculous. Yeah, but just because you find it ridiculous doesn't mean that it is. And why do tyrannosaurids have so why reduce the hand to like two external digits? I mean, because there's a remnant of it, there's a third metacarpal in a lot of them, but but why have the two digits? I mean, is that an indication that they were being, uh, that they're like reducing them over time and they're on the way out? Because if so, why are the two digits so big? Because it's not as if... I've got an explanation for that, Darren. 
genetics or yeah. <laughs> I was going to say Evo Devo <laughs> frame shift because um, the 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 didactyl tyrannosaurs those two fingers are really big and their claws are really big in proportion now I've got to be careful here and I, this is something else I need to check but I, I think that in proportion their fingers and hand claws are like hugely bigger compared to the rest of the arm than you would predict based on other theropods which so it's not just the scaled down theropod arm it's like the whole length and bear in mind they are like I, I kind of agree with you about the small size of them indicating that they're relatively weak for the size of the animal but they're not literally weak because the delta pectoral crest for example on tyrannosaurus humerus is still pretty big there is some work showing that you know again this is ken carpenter and uh catherine lipkin Oh, I can't remember, but there's some work indicating that they still had quite a substantial, you know, the the forelimbs were still able to literally carry large masses, not large compared to the size of the animal, but something of like a couple of hundred kilos or whatever. Um, and then why, yeah, why, if you were just shrinking down the whole arm so it was useless, wouldn't wouldn't you have like really tiny, pathetic? hands with like little tiny claws and they don't have that they got well you might but it depends on how you're doing it doesn't it see i don't think we know enough about the genetics of tyrannosaurs to know how you would shrink those things it's true our 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 knowledge of tyrannosaur genetics is a bit thin um Um, so unless someone can come up with a convincing functional role which I, i think they've failed to do so far well we should say that people have certainly suggested several made several suggestions which fall in various points on the ridiculousometer the ridiculousometer mm. so so on the one hand and bear in mind what we've already said about theropod palms facing inwards bear in mind that they've, they've got these two large claws that are fairly large some people have suggested that they actually like latched into prey and somehow were anchored onto prey while they were biting it and i agree with what john said a moment ago that seems pretty crazy uh, because yeah, tyrannosaur t- triceratops flinches the side that arm is probably going to be wrenched off or snapped off it's other people have suggested that it was used in like lifting, so they could somehow lift, like car- walk along with like <laughs> carry it or whatever. But why? Yeah. When there's a when there's a mouth like you know as big as a small car, yeah, that doesn't really that's never struck struck me as obvious. Then there's the idea that they were used as sexual crampons, and they could like they pinned them in, mm. presumably males into females. Or maybe females into males if they did the reverse mounting thing. That's very common in archosaurs. Mm-hmm. Yes, it is. Um, or is it something to do with the um, push-up after, you know, a bit of exercise? to No, to get up after lying prone on your belly. Mm. And I always thought that was a pretty ridiculous idea because my thinking used to be that this animal basically has got, you know, uh, um, sh- calf muscles as big as me right (laughs) so why couldn't it just stand if it's lying down why can't it just stand up by straightening its legs the same as an ostrich does so I never really got the need to is is it Lawrence Lamb proposed this the fact they might have pinioned you know embedded themselves in the ground with the forelimbs so they didn't slip forwards but then Ken not Ken Carpenter sorry Kent Stevens Kent Stevens did a computer simulation um and I don't know, you know, how one of the one of the issues with his very good-looking um, computer simulations is how ground truth they are based on the based on what living animals can do. But he was saying there's a, there's a paper on this in in uh, one of the books on Tyrannosaurus, um, 
he was saying that, that this might indeed have been a problem, like slipping forwards might have been a problem when standing up, so that there was enough, he, he says there was enough strength in the forelimbs to actually like help them take the weight as they, as they stood. So, um, yeah, so people have suggested those different possible functions to explain why the forelimbs remained uh, and, and basically sort of have, have suggested even that their morphology is adaptive, that they're not just like relics. On the other hand, what we're hinting at is the idea that certainly they are relics, they were on the way out, and that give tyrannosaurs another 10 million years, and they would end up with uh, weird sideways-facing nipples, like in that Greg Paul Future Dinosaurs <laughs> <laughs> illustration. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's hard to know whether they just necessarily disappear, um, just because they were sort of relics. We Lots of animals carry around stuff for a while, it's not necessarily useful now. Um, they also one thing we haven't discussed is that some sort of um, display structure. Now, you know, mm-hmm. maybe they maybe they've got uh, feathers or something attached to them, mm-hmm. and they're little signalling things or something like this, which has been suggested again for some non-bird theropods. I mentioned the weird forelimbs of Carnotaurus. Yeah. We cover this in all yesterday's, don't we? We do. Yeah, it's got interesting story here. It was Memo did the. Um, Carnotaurus picture, didn't he? No, Was I did it? it. Did you? Sorry. Yeah, we both did. We both did a Carnotaurus Okay. Yeah. But mine's the original well, one. You did one, and he... <laughs> well, he did Majungasaurus. Oh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, but, yeah. Right. Yeah. So, John did this picture that basically shows Carnotaurus from the front, like, waving its arms around like a crazy thing. And, um, presumably, you just... I don't know, were you, were you thinking along the same lines as you are now? Yeah. And then... I, you didn't know about this paper by Phil Center, who's done a lot of work on the uh, possible um, ranges of motion and such in theropod forelimbs. I did not, yeah. Uh, and he published this paper saying that, you know, why does Carnotaurus have this, like, big ball-like head on the humerus, with, uh, you know, which would have allowed a, 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 a yeah. higher than normal amount of wavier roundedness. And, um, yeah, suggested and suggested that it was mainly a, that it was predominantly a display function that these animals stood in front of each other and whirled their arms around. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God, that would have been funny. Yeah. Uh, but with the Tyrannos- I mean, Tyrannosaurids do not have the same <laughs> humorous morphology as Carnotaurus, though, so... Not no, but they, they, don't, did they do, didn't do it from that angle or whatever, you know. Yeah. Yeah, they should... Like, little, little fans or flutter, yeah. flutter, flutter. flutter, flutter. <laughs> <laughs> if only there was some way of testing... The speed of like you know muscle movement or something. That's a, that's a really cool paper. Well, there probably practice. is. You can probably predict uh, well within a range, right? Given muscle and masses for, and stuff. Exactly. And for big animals, you come up with really slow yeah. muscle twitch speeds. But um, although you know, well, yeah, who knows? It's a small <laughs> organ on a big animal. I'm sure they can move it. Yeah. Fast yeah. fluttering forelimbs in. Uh, let's just write that down. Fast fluttering. <laughs> So the the truth is, we just don't really know, do we? <laughs> no. Again, no one really knows. We don't know. Um, I'm still fairly um, more on the side that they weren't doing anything. What what what's your feeling on it? Yeah, my feeling is that they're is they're relictual, and who cares? And they're just there because they're just there because the tyrannosaurs come from a group of animals that have forelimbs, and yeah. now they have switched to a. Uh, 
a skull-based method of predation. The um, the forelimbs might be used to grapple onto something if it's within reach, or you know, if they're fighting or whatever, they're not. They're going to use them if the chance is there, but they're not specialised for any function. I think they're on the way out. Um, that is my. Yeah, well, it might be worth talking a little bit about how we think um, big limb theropods use their forelimbs as well. So what, yeah. what's the what's the base state there? Because I often find this quite awkward. Like I've, I've never drawn it because I can't really get it to look good. Which yeah. is how does Allosaurus use its rather impressively big clawed and relatively strong and robust forelimbs in predation? Yeah. It's it's unclear because they're so well they're they're so far back on the body comparative to its head, right? And it seemed to be awkwardly placed and too short. There's a whole cluster of overlapping problems here. Um, the first one is that we tend to imagine... First of all, we should say that Tyrannosaurids evolved from among a radiation of small-bodied yes. theropods. Yes. So, Sorry, did, what, that sort of made it sound like it evolved from an Allosaurus yeah. type thing, which is not the case. Yeah. And that in itself is kind of a bit of a tangent here because the small-bodied ones probably aren't doing the same as the big-bodied ones like Spinosaurs, Allosaurs, and Megalosaurs because small-bodied, you think of like, and when I say small-bodied, I mean like a theropod that's less than two meters long. They probably are grabbing relatively small prey that they can grab with both hands, you know, like small dinosaurs or mammals or fish or whatever. They're able to contain it in the hands and then use the mouth. That's my general thinking as to why the palms are facing inwards yeah, and that and the, the matches with the anatomy of their claws and so on. So you've got to think of tyrannosaurs emerging from from that kind of evolutionary uh, plan. But the big ones, then other overlapping problems. We tend to imagine giant theropods as as uber mega super predators that like you know Allosaurus is running around on the plains taking chunks out of Diplodocus or whatever. Mm. And good arguments have been made. Dave Hone and Ollie Rauhert published a good paper on this that. Big animals, big predators can kill big animals, but they generally don't. They generally predate on animals that are much smaller than themselves. They preferentially feed on carrion or babies. And interesting thing about the Mesozoic, interesting thing about the biology of dinosaurs is we think that a substantial portion of the population of any species at any one time is mostly composed of juveniles, right? So if you're a Tyrannosaurus or an Allosaurus, you can probably kill a Diplodocus, especially if you're cooperating with a few other animals, few other members of your own species, but you're mostly going to be hoovering up babies, right? Yeah. So most of their predation is probably on small things. And if that's true, if you think of an adult Allosaurus eating juvenile sauropods that are less than two meters long, that means that there, doesn't, there isn't necessarily a big role for forelimbs in the predation because you just reach down and you grab them in your mouth or bite their necks off or whatever. So that's yeah. kind of the... So, so, so already I'm thinking that for big theropods, if most of their prey, got to get away from this idea they're always killing big things, if most of their prey are relatively small animals, already the forelimbs are not especially important in, uh, in predation. The second thing, though, is that uh, this overlaps with the idea that, well, sometimes they, they probably did predate on large animals, and we've got evidence for this from, like, you know, Tyrannosaurus bite marks on uh, Triceratops and some possible evidence for interaction between Allosaurus and Stegosaurus and Allosaurus and Camptosaurus and so on. Um, if they were doing that on occasion, there's a paper by, again, Phil Center on... Um, um, 
the forelimb mobility, particularly the hands, in Acrocanthosaurus, which is like similar enough to Allosaurus for us to think this is characteristic. This is like a generality of Allosauroid, certainly. And um, his argument was that there was so much, based on the anatomy of the interphalangeal and phalangeometacarpal joints, basically all the joints between the, the finger bones, there was so much play possible in these fingers that they could not only like flex them extensively, that means they could like bend the fingertips towards the palms, they could do that a lot, but they could also extend them substantially. Like their digits could be bent like back really far, maybe further back than they can in us, and this wasn't a problem for them. And he said that that was perhaps because when they attack prey, they like latch onto it with the giant recurved hand claws and like are sort of digging into its flesh, anchoring on at the same time as they're like biting with the mouth. But, overlapping problems, but problem with that is if I think of a big theropod attacking a big dinosaur like a sauropod, I seriously think the last thing you would want to do would be to latch onto it. Mm. I think it makes more sense, the model that other people have proposed... Robert Backer has written about this, among other people. The idea that you, and Greg Paul has as well, of course, the idea that you rush in, take slashing quick bites or scoops of flesh, stand back. And maybe it takes you, maybe, based on behavior of living animals, maybe it takes you a day or even a couple of days to just come in and keep on weakening this big animal until it dies. And maybe... Greg Paul has specifically suggested this based on the behavior of some predatory whales. Maybe you don't even need to kill them. Maybe you just come in and take a few chunks out of a sauropod and run away. <laughs> because if you're close to it... Yum, yum. Yeah, if you're close to it, it's going to, like, stamp on Fresh. you. Or <laughs> and it just grows, and it grows back. It's your, so you're basically a parasite. Um, yeah, you don't want to be close to one of these animals because it's going to lean on you or kick you or hit you with its tail. Or fall on you. Or fall on you. I... I think that this is kind of like a crazy idea. So, on the one hand, that centre paper makes some sense to me. The, the idea that they've, like, latching in with the forelimbs and using the forelimbs works. On the other hand, it seems super stupid. Um, I'm wondering whether this is because um, allosaurs and, well, al yeah, allosaurids, allosauroids spent a lot of time predating on medium-sized things. You know, something maybe half their size or thereabouts. Mm. And there I can see the latching on with the limbs and biting. Like, hold it down. Get your body over it. Hold it down with your arms and, and bite it. Yeah, that is, would make sense. Is a way to proceed. But even with that, the arms are a long way back on the body. You know, it's... <laughs> just try and draw it out. It it, it looks quite awkward. Um, well, well, I don't know. They're not... I mean, bear in mind... So, think of the shape of this animal. The neck... Then you come down to like the sort of squared off like shoulder coracoid region. That's where the forelimbs are. Sure. The but the problem then is that the skull, and you know how big the skull is. The skull can be like a you know, meter long and the biggest of these animals. The skull, the reach of the skull exceeds the reach of the forelimbs. It's, so it's kind of like eating like that. Yeah, exactly. Sort of, yeah. Uh, exactly. Which, yeah, really awkward. Yeah. And you think of, this is even worse for spinosaurids, these megalosauroid theropods with you know tremendously long cr superficially crocodile like heads mm. so like, people have said that all oh, they're grabbing onto giant fish really big fish you know fish the size of a car or whatever of which they they lived alongside these kinds of animals and then 
and then biting it. But again, it's the same point. It's it's like you think of where the tip of the snout is. It's kind of like, see what I'm doing, John? It's like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it would be it would be like what I just did. What I just showed John is it would be like holding a prey item and then holding it at the base of your neck and then your mouth reaching well beyond the end of of your fingers. It's yeah, it's feel, it seems very awkward, even with medium-sized prey, which I think you know mechanically could sort of work uh, arm-wise um, and might be a sensible way to do it. it. Yeah, it's very awkward to get your mouth there. Um, so I think that the question, getting back to the original question about tyrannosaurs, it's a very difficult one to answer because I don't think we've got a clear idea on what the big-limbed ones did either. I mean, the small ones, maybe. I think that's fairly easy to understand. They've got long, ne- long, flexible necks, very long arms. You can sort of see how they can get all the bits to the right places. But, um, yeah, the big allosauroids, uh, you, you can't, it's very confusing. So <laughs> mm. <laughs> it's, a, it's a trebly confusing thing. Like, what would... Yeah. Yeah. This is the sort of stuff that theropod people talk about a lot. It's been, it's been the subject of quite a few studies, and and we still we still don't have the answers to these questions. We still we want to know more, um, and and yeah, we're we're kind of confused. I mean, I I think what we've both said there is more or less sums up the the feeling of dinosaur workers in general. So, um, and George's question was, what is the current thinking on on why they're on why they're so small? Not, not. Uh, explain it. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> what is the yeah. current thing? So, so we can't explain it, but I hope we've done a you know a quick potted summary of uh, where we're at, and and yeah, we don't know. Where's my drink? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Um, yes. Speculative zoology. Right. Good question. Thank you, George. Yes. Yes, thank you, George. It's always an interesting thing. Uh, I like the more speculative ones. I don't like it when there's an actual answer. <laughs> <laughs> have, we, have, we had, have we had such a question yet? I don't know. <laughs> um, all right, so we've got two questions on the Squamazoic. Yikes. Okay. So, Frank Landis asks whether you could talk about the fauna on and in around the waters of the Squamazoic Hawaii. Hawaii. Oh, I wonder why. Why do you think he picked Hawaii? Is he from Hawaii, or just just a random? Uh, well, the 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 oceans of the Squamazoic. For those who don't know, the Squamazoic is a hypothetical alternative timeline world invented by myself. If you Google Squamazoic Nash or something along those lines, you'll find. Um, I doubt you'll need Nash there, really, will you? Oh, I don't know. There's a lot of fan art out there, John. Oh, okay. There's, yeah, there's, all, there's whole fora. There's, there's, Forum, sorry, uh, devoted to to disco. No, I'm, I'm joking. Um, so the Squamazoic oceans are. There's a lot of fish. <laughs> well, there's fish Not because fish. Because, yeah, all of the uh, basically non-tetrapod evolution has occurred as it has in on our in our timeline. So so if you think about the waters around the Galapagos, yeah, you're going to get you know most of the groups of fish, bony and cartilaginous exist in real life but um, a substantial portion of vertebrate biomass in the Squamazoic Oceans is occupied by sea snakes so elapids that's the group of venomous colubroid snakes that includes cobras and uh, vipers and rattlesnakes and so on they they do exist in the Squamazoic world but they have much lower diversity than they do in the real life 
uh, timeline. Partly because their evolution never really took off after the Miocene due to the evolution of uh, small mammals, rodents in particular. So elapids are there in the background, small group, um, and there hasn't been the... So I'll go off on a tangent because I'll, I'll start talking about terrestrial snakes and I don't want to. There has been this radiation of um, uh, aquatic elapids and uh, there's a there are huge, like, huge swarms of elapids, like slicks of them, kilometres long. <laughs> the problem with inventing a hypothetical world is basically you chuck in what you like because you think it's cool. And then people say, ah, but what about this? Ah, but it, does that really make sense? Ah, doesn't it? Which is it's what like... we do to every single movie that comes out. <laughs> exactly. And it's like, but this is a hypothetical world. I can do what I like. There just are, okay? Uh, there also are uh, paleophiids, which in uh, real life timeline, this is a group that died out in the paleogene, a group of aquatic snakes that some of which were middle-ish size, like 1 to 1.5 meters, but some of which were seemingly gigantic. So during the paleogene, there are gigantic seagoing snakes of many meters long. And oh, I'm not going to say precisely how long. I want to say 9 meters, but I don't think that's right at all. But there's, bit, there's big paleophiids. There are paleophiids of like definitely more than 4 meters long. And they persist in um, the, the Squamozoic. There haven't been several of the kind of key climatic events in the Squamozoic timeline as they have in ours, just basically to make it easier for Squamates to be cool. Um, <laughs> so, cool Squamates, so, be cool. Yeah, cool squamates. So there's loads and loads of sea snakes. So you should imagine seeing sea snakes preying on, preying on fish and eating fish eggs and all kinds of stuff if you were snorkeling in the waters around the Galapagos Islands. There's also like a set of like big pelagic, long-bodied and incredibly flamboyant animals called podarciforms, which evolved from ancestors similar to Lacertids of our timeline. Um, so there's the dragon-esque podarciforms, which are like giant, silvery-scaled, long-bodied, pointy-snouted things. Then also, while we're in the Pacific Ocean, there's two of the major aquatic groups of squamates that you would see in surface waters. There's lubagoobs, which are a group of uh, algae-eating um, iguanians, lubagoobs, uh, which basically they've they're kind of like big-bodied aquatic versions of marine iguanas. So they're meant to have started out on like the Pacific coast of South America and obviously the Galapagos and thereabouts, but they've spread throughout the whole of the Pacific, which is no problem for animals of that size to cross oceans. So you definitely see them around Hawaii. And there's also a group of um, deep diving, but not necessarily open ocean um, skinks called the Fentabenchies, <laughs> which which forage among rock piles and the walls of canyons and just off the edge of the uh, continental shelf and stuff. They reach into crevices and eat echinoderms and uh, mollusks and stuff like that. And uh, they're kind of like quite long-bodied. They've got particularly robust, well-muscled forelimbs. And they've got like a load of like throat and body armor and uh, a very keratinized snout, which is... Uh, all these things, all the animals in the Squamazoic are inspired by, by real events, as, I've, as, as of course is well known. And based if you're on a true story. Then. It's all based on a true story. It all really happened. If you were especially lucky and if you were, you know, diving around somewhere like Hawaii, you might see some of the big, truly pelagic uh, squamazoic animals like uh, um, sensopsians, which are these like weird, deep-diving 
uber mega giant uh seagoing um relatives of well they're angle morphs they're relatives of gawley wasps and slowworms and things but they're really huge they're kind of like kind of like modern day mosasaurs but sensopsians are actually really specialized ones that re- rely on some other sensory adaptation that nobody's yet <laughs> like like nobody's yet inv- nobody's yet discovered it uh <laughs> It's almost like telepathy. No, I, no, I don't know. I don't know. I just know they're blind. And there's also deep diving, but long-bodied, um, sort of eel-shaped relatives called gulpopolorians. Uh, what are they called? Gulping terrors, because they're just meant to be terrifying. <laughs> so, and there's there's other stuff as well that you that you could see in the middle of the Pacific. Um, there's a there's a there's a pelagic anglemorph fauna that includes sea wasps, myrtidons, bathysaurs, sensopsians, and gulping terrors um so i don't know that's i could yeah. just make up a load of other stuff couldn't i so you loads could. of loads you of sea make snakes. Up as much as you like but i think you have to stick to canon for now which is stuff yeah. you've written down somewhere exactly that's all canon that's all canon I that's mean, all canon all right yeah it's an interesting point is how many animals people invent for a speculative scenario Obviously, okay, my talk at Tetsukon is on the past, present, and future of speculative zoology. So I've been, you know, looking into this. Dougal Dixon's After Man, 1981, 110 speculative animals, which is quite a lot. Um, the Future is Wild is the 2004 TV series. I think that's about like 40. So Squamazelk, I don't know, but I, I would guess it's somewhere around 30 to 40 with others that have been, you know, alluded to or certainly it was certainly enough for a field guide that's the point it's like when people do this they do tend to flesh out a world so that you can imagine creatures in you know most environments and most land masses yeah it's it'd be interesting to know what the weighting is like what sorts of animals people come up with mm. what sort of niches they fixate on to fill up with animals compared to reality yeah because the tendency is to just invent a load of super predators hyper carnivores and stuff but on the other hand because we're aware of that i know that in the squamazoic world i did think right we need loads and loads of boring animals so you spend a lot of time doing i made the point in in part of the article that in this fauna like 90 percent of the animals are less than 30 centimetres long, and there's only one or two giants. And that's true of the Squamazoic in general. It's meant to be like huge populations of small animals, although with some being inhabited by a large number of big animals. But, um, yeah, you've got to be... Got to keep this in mind. Got to gotta, gotta be fair. Got to be even. Got to gotta keep it boring. Don't want to get <laughs> yeah. too... Uh, yeah, don't want to be sensationalist. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Have you seen Wayne Barlow's Expedition? The book Expedition, published no, 1990. I don't, no, I don't think I have. Really amazing, yeah. Because I got just got permission off him to use images of his creatures in my in my talk. So um, I should say that as well as talking at Tetsukon about speculative zoology, I'm then giving a longer version of the talk at LongCon 3, the London Science Fiction Convention. So, uh, hey, are you giving a longer version of the Science Fiction co- Convention? Yeah. <sighs> Darren. Well, that's because the Tetsukon one... Some idiot has only given us half an hour, <laughs> and the the Loncon one is is a bit longer. So oh, that's just terrible, terrible marketing. We'll talk about this after the podcast, Terry. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> I don't have time to. I was invited to give a talk. I'm not going to prepare another one. I'm just going to do the beefed up version of the. Uh... Don't worry, all the valuable stuff will be at TetsuCon. Yeah. Um, okay, so let's do the next uh, Squamazoic question then. Yeah. Uh, Aaron Wells. Okay, Aaron Wells, yeah. This is from Aaron Wells, and he's been wondering about this since the big. No- 2013 April Fool's post about the Squamazoic. There are hints throughout the article that there is some sort of intelligent species in the Squamazoic, including scientists who study the fauna in their world and publish journals in... Oh, and publish journals like... Squamarama. 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 So can you say anything about the intelligent species of the Squamazoic? I'd like to imagine it's a race of sentient Sicilians. That's a good idea, sentient Sicilians. I'm not sure if there are Sicilians in the Squamazoic world. Also, in a previous podcast, we've announced we've declared Sicilians as to be the stupidest. Of the <laughs> okay, so Was it's it tetrapods. Not... Yes, yes, that's right. <laughs> yeah, so that yeah. seems unlikely. Yeah, it is unlikely, but nice idea. Thank you, Aaron. Um, the idea when I was an idea I was toying with when I wrote the Squamazoic article which is, what's it called, Welcome to the Squamazoic? The idea is that it was meant to be written by Squamazoic scientists. Um, and probably, so there's meant to be uh, intelligence, like self-aware book writing intelligence, <laughs> has evolved twice within the South American iguanians called Arboranas, or Arboranas, is that right? God, I don't know. Don't even remember the names of these things. <laughs> you made them up. Uh, arbuanas. Yeah. There's intelligent, big-brained, social arbuanas. And there's also uh, intelligent, big-brained teoids. Well, hold on. They're South American as well. So, well, there you go. The Americas is the <laughs> the, the neotropics. But not, yeah, not the north. The... Uh, the South American tropics, South America, is is the the place of intelligence in the Squamazoic world, and everywhere else is wall to wall dumbditude. So uh, that's not true because there's actually like reasonably intelligent, um, like Varanidans and stuff. Because because that one one of the one of the really interesting things about a hypothetical world populated by big bodied um, uh, squamates is that. Many of the like key adaptations that make squamates really cool, like various aspects of behavioural flexibility and uh, the evolution of like large body size and the evolution of like semi erect gates and stuff, have, of course, this is probably going to turn out to be true for any any clade, any major group, but they're kind of widely those key things are widely distributed among the disparate lineages. It's not like they all cluster within. Uh, one little corner of the tree so you could have and of course I was, when I started saying this I was thinking that makes it different from the real world but it, it doesn't because you know the more we learn the more we know that there are big brain birds that are basically you know on par with primates and the whole idea that placental mammals are different from marsupials in brain size and stuff is is not true at all and and we know that there are you know reptiles like lizards that can that can perform behavioural feats of complexity and memory and stuff that are on par with those of mammals and, and even and there are smart fish and all that fish and all kinds of stuff fish. so um is it that fish that you can see the brain of 
Do you mean that's one of those deep sea uh, slime head things where you can see the? It's got the translucent top translucent to the head. Translucent top to the head. Yeah. 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 No, it's not. No, they're they're not so clever. Uh, don't think, think deep sea fish are particularly intelligent. But um, um, back to the Scarmozoic. So yeah. there are two two intelligent. Do they both write in journals? Um. Well, well I don't know. Maybe. Maybe. How I, did I, they avoid? Like, I haven't fleshed out this bit Oh, they formed an alliance early on, and they're best buds. <laughs> I don't know. I haven't thought. I honestly haven't. I, I really should think this one through, because because what? How would? It's been said before that in our world, if there was another species of another lineage that was similar to us in in intelligence, there would be wars. One would subjugate the other. There would be, you know, extreme racism and hatred and stuff. But obviously we don't know that. Would there be? I mean, our relationship to other animals is incredibly complicated. Yes, but it's pretty adversarial towards the ones that directly compete with us. So how how well are big cats doing right now, huh? Yeah, but they're... But what, but, yeah, okay, big cats, but they're... So there. imagine there's something like a big cat, but they're even more of a threat and compete for even more of our resources. I, yes, it would be absolutely. Yeah, I, I think that I think that is a strong, uh, a very strong idea that we would be very adversarial and one and one would win early on because the pressure to be would be okay. quite high okay. to do so. Big cats, but what if they were parrots? They we beat. Well, if they started to compete for things like oil and stuff like that, what do you think would happen? Mm. <laughs> <laughs> There's, have you ever read War of the Newts? No. No, uh, neither have I. But it's a, but it's a story <laughs> oh, great. about... Good conversation, man. It's, it's about like intelligent salamanders that compete with humanity, hence the title War of the Newts. Yeah. But... um. Well, uh, yeah, interesting. Mm. Okay, so the the yeah. way I think you could get away with this is that if for some reason they didn't compete for the same resources, they were quite segregated niche-wise. So one way would be put one, one lot in the oceans and one land. Obviously, that would be one way. Another way is that they're just not technological in the way we are. So, yeah, they, you know, they publish... Uh, Squamarama, <laughs> published on leaves. <laughs> yeah, or yeah, you know, on paper. Okay, so they, you know, they, they, uh, or whatever. They, they, yeah. they, plants, and they have printing presses. But there's not this huge. But most, most of their food comes from sort of the way they always did it, which is non-competitive with the other intelligent species. And uh, it, it is possible, but I think once you start to get into voracious technologicalism, technologicalism. Sounds good, it'll do. Uh, technological civilization like we have, then yeah. you're competing for everything. And I just can't see two competitive intelligences um, not trying to obliterate each other. Haven't you seen Star Trek? <laughs> oh, we should talk about Star Trek. Star Trek, I've, I've been watching the entire Next Generation from the beginning. Have you really? Yeah, it's a terrible show, Star Trek. It really is. Aww. But there's, there's lots of... Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's yeah. It's got some it's got good actors in it. That's what's funny about it. Like it's good what it's interesting watching Patrick Stewart deliver those vines and the crazy things that they do. But anyway, um yeah, it's oh, 
it's it's just too dumb. The 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 whole setup of Star Trek is just it can't be taken seriously. Um, yeah, but in the Squamazoic, I think if you're going to have two intelligences and they're both in Brazil, right? What if one's in Brazil and South one's in Argentina? America. Okay, yeah, maybe maybe yeah maybe they're very um climate wise very um particular. Yeah, well that that's. I've already said that these animals are both in South America. But yeah. what if, hypothetically, what if like they're on different continents and you're different... Of course, that raises whole questions about... Because part of, obviously, human history is linked to dispersal and seafaring and everything. It'd be hard to... Especially given that animals like lizards will already be familiar with the idea of rafting all over the place. Because that's what they do. It's like, oh yes, we know that our ancestors did that <laughs> millions of years ago. <laughs> millions of years ago, yeah. <laughs> Let's strike out across the Pacific or whatever. Um, yeah, I think you're better off going with um, division of climate that they're very particular. Yeah. But then, but then, what I was thinking is, well, what about if, like, you it, hypothetically you have two intelligent cultures that have risen on different continents? They both reach a similar level of uh, technological and industrial advancement, and then they meet. Well. In our own species, every time that's happened, it hasn't gone well. No, it hasn't gone exactly. Yeah, for, for the uh, the less te- technologically sophisticated uh, population, as all, all kinds of horrible, dirty, underhanded tricks have been used, like deliberate introduction of uh, diseases and stuff. So, Which but then might not dis- be available to um, different species of squamate. Yeah. So, what if what if the squamate world has actually gone through a war of attrition, and one of the species has like been really badly affected like let's say iguanas are superior to teoids or vice versa but our civilization our species is evolving towards increasing racial and cultural homogeneity or tolerance certainly tolerance and conceivably in an ideal star trek future people you know will have like widely you know interbred and they won't they won't be as much, so much, and I hope, or maybe no racism whatsoever. So, what about the idea the Squamazoic? They've gone through this period, but now there's a reduced population of one of the of the the, the species that was more subjugated, or subjugated, and uh, but now because they've gone through that phase, there are members of this other species, other culture that are revered or protected, or contribute in some meaningful way to Squamazoic society. They're on a reservation, <laughs> for example. Yeah, they're on a reservation, or it's like think think of any culture where a set of like think of for example, there's a bunch of like East African people that for hundreds of years have lived in India, and they're now integrated with Indian culture. They're not like still they don't they're not still they don't stick out there as as you know weird African people that live in India. They're like now part of Indian culture. Um, I mean, okay, the problem with talking about humans is that humans are so similar in any case, you often can't really... Yeah, so you're imagining different species. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it is hard to imagine, like, say, oh, I don't know, what's what's an equivalent? They're probably quite far apart, aren't they? Yeah, like a super intelligent cow or something. Yeah, even more than that. I mean, you're talking about lineages that have been separate since the Jurassic or whatever. Right. Uh, okay, so maybe kangaroo or... Yeah, something like this. Yeah. Although once yeah. you start getting deep down in the tree, it doesn't really matter. Relative distance is not that important. But it's it's a long way. It's not. Yeah, it's hard to imagine us just sort of getting along and integration happening with. It could. I guess it could. I mean, Simon Conway Morris said it could happen. <sighs> <Didn't he? laughs> 
because <laughs> everyone had looked the same. Simon Conway Morris. For, uh, do people know who Simon Conway Morris is? He's like famous paleontologist, described birds as shale animals, and fundamentally disagreed with Stephen Jay Gould's idea promoted in Wonderful Life, the idea that, you know, Gould says in Wonderful Life that, yeah, if history was played differently, I'm, I'm just going to, I'm going to repeat a lot of stuff that I'm saying in my Tezucon talk here, because this is like a big part of speculative zoology and alternative history in general. Um, but Gould says, you know, if we replayed history, nothing would work out, there's, nothing would work the same, there's no reason, there's no indication that there's destiny to evolutionary lineages, that's basically what he's saying, and that, you know, if you change small events in the Cambrian, then today you would have like the world would be dominated by lynxes or forest raked birds or you know whatever. Um, Conway Morris says that humans are best, <laughs> and that humanoids would have evolved. I've got a feeling I mentioned this many many episodes back. Yeah, I think we've talked about yeah. this before. Yeah, and his book is called something along the lines of "Inevitable Humans in a Lonely Universe." And he basically I believe says, we poo pooed the idea. Good, good. Well, I'm, I'm doing this, you know, similar thing now. He actually says in a documentary about possible alternative evolution of dinosaurs, a documentary I've never seen, even though I think it's online, they talk about Dale Russell's, you know, smart dinosaur idea, dinosauroid model, and they have Conway Morris on it saying that, that like, the evolution of humanoids was inevitable and that, and that if there wasn't the KPG event... Extinction time. <laughs> <laughs> if the KPG event hadn't occurred, then dinosaurs would have become humanoids, but primates would have evolved anyway, and so hominids, hominids and hominids would have evolved anyway, and then maybe uh, hominids and uh, humanoid dinosaurs would have like worked together. So they have this, they have this section <sighs> in, the, in the TV show of like a di- dinosauroids milling around in coffee shops and stuff alongside humans. So, uh, so yeah, Simon Comet yeah. Morris, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's all pretty dumb. It is. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. So you got to do better for the squamazoic. Exactly. Well, the the obsession that people have with humanoids, I mean, in the history of science fiction, is obviously predominantly because not only does that work plot device wise, but also because it's easy to stick makeup on. Generally, you're generally restricted to using humans as actors. <laughs> um, but there's a whole load of reasons that maybe we have covered this before, but yeah, humans are a particular body shape due to being part of a partic- an unusual group of mammals. It's, there's nothing inevitable about... The generalities, maybe, you know, you want to have a brain somewhere at the front, and you want to have binocular vision, and you want to have handy, grabby things. But I think they need to do... We were talking about Star Trek a bit. I think they need to do a reboot of Star Trek, yes, again, <laughs> and make all the aliens alien. Because you love reboots. Make Vulcans look crazy, like something completely different. And make, yeah, Klingons. Just change them all. Change all of them into actual alien species. That would make an interesting reboot. Because you can do it now with CGI, right? Yeah. And you couldn't do it back then, of course, even Mm. next generation. So do Mm. it now. That would be a crazy show. That would be great. I'd watch that. It's called Farscape. (laughs) No, it's not. Yeah. 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 Farscape, Farscape, to their credit, did did do some properly alien aliens, but not enough because, well, there's there's so many problems of budget and stuff that. Um, yeah. Also, just the show just didn't work for me. I don't know. Wasn't Farscape. Mm. I love Farscape. Amazing. Yeah, I, did, I didn't. I really liked it. Mm. <laughs> no, it's really good. 
That was great. That's all right. I don't know. Shut I up. Just didn't, it was brilliant. I don't know. It didn't, it didn't ever work for me. Not ah, properly. Well, well, I thought it was really good. Yeah, okay. <laughs> A living ship. You like everything. No. Well, yeah, I do. <laughs> Pretty much. That, that about sums up my attitude to everything. Thanks, John. I like everything. <laughs> no, I don't. That's true. You do, about... get, you do get very angry about some things. Try Star Godzilla. Try Star Godzilla, which you... Yeah, that's true. Yeah, terrible d- film. Terrible film. Unlike the new one, ah, which is exactly Twilight. Twilight. I hate Twilight. Do you? Have you ever yep. seen it? I have seen it. I went, I went to the point of watching all the Twilight movies just to prove to myself that I really didn't like it, and I hate it. I hate it so much. It's what? terrible. Why did you watch... Really? You watched them all just to yeah, prove because, to that you didn't like it? Yeah. I should, I should say that, obviously, Tony wanted to watch them, so I... I didn't like to say, oh, let's watch Twilight. I like sat down and watched them with her. And I watched them because I find them interesting. I'm interested in phenomena like this. Is t- t- hate Twilight so much because this, uh, I, I have to be careful what I say because it would say, it would sound, I'm, I'm afraid that my opinion will sound potentially horribly sexist. But I, I really dislike it because it's basically about the story of female obsession it's like Bella is obsessed with Edward this vampire and some of the movies are entirely about her obsession with him about she's crying at night because he's not there and and it's like there's one whole episode which is all about after they get married and they're gonna be intimate for the first time and the whole film is just basically about her plucking up the courage to go to bed with him and it's oh my god and then the last one is about the last one on part two they have a baby it's like a robot baby it looks really weird and <laughs> they have this there's like good vampires versus bad vampires with werewolves in it as well uh-huh. and there's this huge fight between the good vampires and the bad vampires and everybody dies loads of major characters get killed the ground opens up and swallows them. oh spoilers by the way sorry spoilers spoilers for twilight yeah spoilers the the ground opens up and loads of characters get fall into lava and all kinds of stuff. oh my god lo- wow oh she's dead oh he's dead oh wow major character change and then one of them wakes up and it was all a dream. <laughs> oh, no, <laughs> the really? end. The end. No, really. <laughs> really. Oh, okay. Geez. It wasn't. He wakes up and all, and and it's all a dream. I can't remember the name of the actor. He's the guy who plays. Uh, he's played Tony Blair in a movie. He played uh, a really annoying character in that that Tron film. Um, you know, what's the the new Tron film called? Tron Legacy. Legacy. Yeah. Tron Legacy. You know the bit with. Daft Punk. I don't remember and, any uh, of that film. Whatever. It, yeah. Yeah. He's he's like the leader of the evil vampires, mm-hmm. and uh, they have this huge fight which goes on for like twenty minutes, and then the fight finishes just after just after his head's been cut off, so he's dead, and then it turns out that uh, another character's got their hand around his throat, and she's giving him some sort of like, this is what might happen. It's happening in your head. <laughs> That's but, um, that's really appalling. Yeah, so don't watch Twilight. Don't like those. I don't like new episodes of The Simpsons. I think they're pretty awful. Mm. Anything beyond about season thirteen of The Simpsons, really, sort of all down. Yeah, uh, I hadn't seen any until recently, and I watched a few. I think from uh, season twenty something. <laughs> I gotta say, I didn't think they were that bad. 
some of them I, are just they, a- they went through a phase where they just did crazy episodes where this happened then that happened then this happened then that happened yeah and the ones I watched I don't know I wish I could remember which season it was now they seemed, they were back to the old here's a story and let's tell it structure hmm anyway so, I think I think if you watch the whole lot through, you get really sick of it. But actually, I thought if you'd put those episodes that I watched from season twenty-three or whatever it was back into season ten or something like that, they'd they'd fit in there. Now my life is different from yours because of the children. The TV is on constantly, which on the same several channels, which means that the same things get watched again and again and again. If you've got yeah. the Sky channels, but you like Simpsons- that anyway. <laughs> this, if the, but if there's things you don't like, <laughs> yeah, they're on again and again and again and again. And the, some episodes of The Simpsons, I think, are really awful, really bad. And those are the ones they tend to show again and again because there there are like seven episodes of The Simpsons on every evening. Mm. So the kids have it on; it's like on all the time. So like, oh no, this is the one where Marge goes mad again. I've seen this one, you know, and I know all the words to it or most of the words to it. Um, this yeah, is another problem you have that everything you see that it goes in and is stored in your head somewhere. The stuff that doesn't matter. Yes, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know any of the details of my mortgage or anything like that. <laughs> Tony's the keeper of that kind of information, but <laughs> Simpsons quotes. <laughs> oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, diddly. Um, yeah. Okay, I think we should. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know whether there is a topic now. I think that was sort of yeah. We, Twilight, we Simpsons. Yeah. Yeah. So that was don't... the end of a cash for question. So that oh, okay. was that was um, Aaron Wells. Thanks to thanks Aaron. Aaron. Yep. So um, long time supporter of the show. Uh, we've got another two cash for questions, and I'm wondering if we should kick them to next episode. I think probably we should because it's we've been talking for a long time now. We've been uh, yeah, we've been podcasting for well about an hour and a half. Yeah. Um, mm. So I think we'll move the next questions to next episode. So sorry to Christian Mulally and Mike Hansen, but we're going to do your questions next episode. Yes. Yep. So So thanks to Catherine Fowler, George Stark, Frank Landis and Aaron Wells for their excellent questions. Yes, thank you. Great. And thank you in general to people who support us generously with their enormous, with their copious donations. Yeah. We are money. rolling in cash. Rolling questions. in cash. So much so that we, are able to th- we have to throw it away so we don't pay tax on it yeah. by throwing a crazy uh, <laughs> Brewster's Million style <laughs> convention <laughs> with an iceberg in London. <clears throat> um <laughs> Tezucon. So the next time we're here, Tezucon will have happened. Yep. We'll be different people. We'll be all uh, haggard and worn out, ground down. Oh, uh, I thought we'd be like famous and oh, smoking. I cigars thought I might be too thing. famous to do the podcast anymore. Yeah, well, I get, fa- I get my minions to do it. <laughs> do my do my podcast for your minions. Oh, that research I did on deer antlers. Who was the deer antler question from? Oh, this doesn't matter. We can leave that to me. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah. So, Tezucon happening imminently. Yep. And we are encouraging, or certainly I am, I don't know about you, encouraging people to, like, live tweet from the meeting. Yep. And, uh, yeah, you know, if people, if people go, 
I'm assuming this is the thing. Yeah, there's a community built up around the blog. You know, a lot of people are going to be meeting people for the first time. Um, yeah, if you want to blog about it or tweet pictures or whatever, then I think we've got the permission of all speakers that their um, images and such can be shared. So um, yeah, we 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 encourage that and um, yeah, look, looking forward to it. Thank you. Uh, right, is that it? Uh, is there anything else? Yep, I think so. Okay. So, okay, do you want to go first? No, you go first. Okay, if you're interested in Tetrapod Zoology or any of the subjects discussed in this podcast, except Twilight. It's <laughs> 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 so awful. It's so awful, those films. <laughs> um, uh, <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> made you so angry. You lost your train of thought. <laughs> Tetrapodology. There's there's a blog called Tetrapodology currently hosted at Scientific American. There's also a Tetrapodology Facebook page. It's very important that you like this. Very important. Go and take like on Tetrapodology Facebook page. It includes updates that you don't get anywhere else except on the blog, which you get free anyway. Um, I tweet at oh go away beastly things <laughs> at Tetzoo. <laughs> hang on, hang on. What was that one? I didn't recognise that one. Um, Minox. Chewing on the power cables. Empire Strikes Back. The Millennium Falcon hides inside the body of a giant creature called a space slug on an, ast- yeah. an asteroid field. And there are creatures in the Minox stomach. So in the yeah, space yeah. slug stomach called Minox, which, which apparently, are, I don't know, they attach themselves to power cables and chew on things. They chew on shit. <laughs> said go stuff. away, beastly things. <laughs> Who do you think? Han Solo? No. Princess Leia? Probably not. Chewbacca? Hmm, I'm guessing not. Could it possibly be C-3PO? <laughs> yeah. He goes, oh, go away, <laughs> beastly things like that. Uh, okay. Never talked about the golden rod joke. No, do that another time. Um, isn't that it? Oh, books. Yeah. If you're interested in uh, what we write about and stuff, uh, then check out our books, All Yesterdays, and The Cryptozoological in Volume 1, with Volume 2, <laughs> soon to appear. <laughs> <laughs> What is it about having something 90% done which seems to have ground, ground us to a complete it's, standstill? It, yeah, it's, it, it's like, it is not, John's not joking, 90% done, if not, if not more. But, um, well, I've had all these other things that have just taken yeah, up all... also, the last bit's really boring. It's proofreading and stuff, which is just boring. There's a couple of things left to do, but yeah. it's nearly there. Anyway, uh, all yesterday's and Cryptozoological um, Volume 1, available through um, our publisher, Irregular Books. And um, have I got any new things out? Any books or anything? I mean, the most recent book I probably did was Build the T Rex, which is like a children's book. Uh, the current issue of Fortean Times, uh, which is like, yeah, if you're interested in this stuff, an article on speculative zoology. And uh, that'll do for me, I guess. <laughs> Bit of a mess, right. sorry. Yeah, great. <laughs> uh, I'm at johnconway.co, where you can find links to my Twitters and my Facebooks. Um, yeah, um, I think that's it really. I haven't really done anything recently. I've been working on stupid stuff, which is going nowhere. So, yeah, um, I think that's it. I think that's it. 